Chapter 4 of The Spirit of the Age or Contemporary Portraits by William Hazlitt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shreya Sethi. Chapter 4 Edward Irving. Reverend Mr. Irving. This gentleman has gained an almost unprecedented and not an altogether unmerited popularity as a preacher, as he is perhaps though a burning and a shining light not one of the fixed. We shall take this opportunity of discussing his merits while he is at his meridian height, and in doing so shall nothing extenuate or set down aught in malice few circumstances show the prevailing and preposterous rage for novelty in a more striking point of view than the success of mr irving's oratory people go to hear him in crowds and come away with a mixture of delight and astonishment they go again to see if the effect will continue and send others to try to find out the mystery and in the noisy conflict between extravagant encomiums and splenetic objections the true secret escapes observation which is that the whole thing is nearly from the beginning to end a transposition of ideas if the subject of these remarks had come out as a player with all his advantages of figure voice and action we think he would have failed if as a preacher he had kept within the strict bounds of pulpit oratory he would scarcely have been much distinguished among his calvinistic brethren as a mere author he would have excited attention rather by his quaintness and affection of an obsolete style and mode of thinking than by anything else but he has contrived to jumble these several characters together in an unheard-of unwarranted manner and the fascination is altogether irresistible our caledonian divine is equally an anomaly in nature in literature in personal appearance and in public speaking to hear a person spout shakespeare on the stage is nothing the charm is nearly worn out but to hear any one spout shakespeare and that not in a sneaking undertone but at the top of his voice and with the full breadth of his chest from a calvinistic pulpit is new and wonderful the fancy have lately lost something of their gloss in public estimation and after the last fight few could go far to see a neat or a spring set to but to see a man who is able to enter the ring with either of them or brandish a quarter-staff with friar tuck or a broadsword with shaw the lifeguard's man stand up in a straight-laced old-fashioned pulpit and brandy dialects with modern philosophers or give a cross buttock to a cabinet minister there is something in a sight like this also that is a cure for sore eyes it is as if Rib or maleno has returned methodist parson or as if a pantagonian savage were to come forward as the patron saint of evangelical religion again the doctrine of eternal punishment was one of the staple arguments with which everlastingly drawled out the old school of presbyterian divines used to keep their audiences awake or lull them to sleep but to which people of taste and fashion paid little attention as inelegant and barbarous till mr irving with his cast-iron features and sledge-hammer blows puffing like a grim vulcan set to work to forge more classic thunderbolts and kindle the expiring flames anew with the very sweepings of sceptical and infidel libraries so as to excite a pleasing horror in the female part of his congregation 
In short, our popular disclaimer has, contrary to the scripture caution, put new wine into old bottles or new cloth on old garments. He has, with an unlimited and daring license, mixed the sacred and the profane together, the carnal and the spiritual man, the petulance of the bar with the dogmatism of the pulpit, the theatrical and theological, the modern and the obsolete. What wonder that this splendid piece of patchwork, splendid by contradiction and contrast, has delighted some and confounded others. The more serious part of his congregation indeed complain, though not bitterly, that their pastor has converted their meeting house into a playhouse. But when a lady of quality, introducing herself and her three daughters to the preacher, assures him that they have been to all the most fashionable places of resort, the opera, the theatre, assemblies, Miss Macaulay's readings and Exeter change, and have been equally entertained nowhere else, we apprehend that no remonstrations of a committee of ruling elders will be able to bring him to his senses again, or make him forego such sweet but ill-assorted praise. What we mean to insist upon is that Mr. Irving owes his triumphant success not to any one quality for which he has been extolled, but to a combination of qualities, the more striking in their immediate effect in proportion as they are unlooked for and heterogeneous, like the violent opposition of light and shade in a picture. We shall endeavour to explain this view of the subject more at large. Mr. Irving, then, is no common or mean man. He has four or five qualities, possessed in a moderate or in a paramount degree, which, added or multiplied together, fill up the important space he occupies in the public eye. Mr. Irving's intellect itself is of a superior order. He has undoubtedly both talents and acquirements beyond the ordinary run of everyday preachers. These alone, however, we hold, would not account for a twentieth part of the effect he has produced. They would have lifted him perhaps out of the mire and slough of sordid obscurity, but would have never launched him into the ocean stream of popularity, in which he lies floating many a rood. But to these he adds uncommon height, a graceful figure and action, a clear and powerful voice, a striking, if not a fine face a bold and fiery spirit and a most portentous obliquity of vision which throw him to an immeasurable distance beyond all competition and effectually relieve whatever there might be of commonplace or bombast in his style of composition put the case that mr irving had been five feet high would he ever have been heard of or as he does now have destroyed the world like a colossus no the thing speaks for itself he would in vain have lifted his Lilliputian arm to heaven. People would have laughed at his monkey tricks. Again, had he been as tall as he is, but had wanted other recommendations, he would have been nothing. The players' province they but vainly try. Who want these spars, deportment, voice and eye? Conceive a rough, ugly, shock-headed Scotchman, standing up in the Caledonian chapel and dealing damnation round the land, in a broad northern dialect and with a harsh speaking voice. What ear polite, what smile serene, would have hailed the barbarous prodigy, or not consigned him to utter neglect and derision, but the Reverend Edward Irving, with all his native vileness, hath a smooth aspect framed to make women saints.
His very unusual size and height are carried off and molded into elegance by the most admirable symmetry of form and ease of gesture. His sable locks, his clear iron-grey complexion and firm-set features turn the raw, uncouth Scotchman into the likeness of a noble Italian picture, and even his distortion of sight only redeems the otherwise faultless monster within the bounds of humanity. And when admiration is exhausted and curiosity ceases, excites a new interest by leading to the idle question whether it is an advantage to the preacher or not. Father, give him all his actual and remarkable advantages of body and mind. Let him be as tall, as straight, as dark and clear of skin, as much as his ease, as silver-tongued, as eloquent, and as argumentative as he is. Yet with all these, and without a little charlatanry, to set them off, he had been nothing. He might, keeping within the rigid line of his duty and professed calling, have preached on forever. He might have divided the old-fashioned doctrines of elegance, grace, reprobation, predestination into his sixteenth, seventeenth, and eighteenth heads, and his lastly have been looked for as a consummation devoutly to be wished. He might have defied the devil and all his works, and by the help of a loud and strong-set person, a lusty man to Ben and Abbot Abel. Have increased his own congregation and been quoted among the godly as a powerful preacher of the word. But in addition to this, he went out of his way to attack Jeremy Bentham, and the town was up in arms. The thing was new. He thus wiped the stain of musty ignorance and formal bigotry out of his style. Mr. Irving must have something superior in him to look over the shining, close-packed heads of his congregation, to have hit at the great jurisconsult. His next, ere the report of the former blow had subsided, made a lunge at Mr. Brougham and glanced at the eye at Mr. Canning, mystified Mr. Coleridge and stultified Lord Liverpool in his place in the gallery. It was rare sport to see him, like an eagle in a dovecot, flutter the Volsians and Corollae. He has found out the secret of attracting by repelling. Those whom he is likely to attack are curious to hear what he has to say of them. They go again to show that they do not mind it. It is no less interesting to the bystanders who like to witness this sort of onslaught. Like a charge of cavalry, the shock and the resistance. Mr. Irving has, in fact, without leave asked or a license granted, converted the Caledonian chapel into a Westminster forum or debating society, with the sanctity of religion added to it. Our spirited polemic is not contended to defend the citadel of orthodoxy against all impuners and shut himself up in texts of scriptures and huge volumes of the commentators as an impregnable fortress. He merely makes use of the stronghold of religion as a resting place, from which he sallies forth, armed with modern topics and with penal fire, like Achilles of old rushing from the Grecian tents, against the adversaries of God and man. Peter Orantine is said to have laid the princes of Europe under contribution by penning satires against them. So Mr. Irving keeps the public in awe by insulting all their favourite idols. He does not spare their politicians, their rulers, their moralists, their poets, their players, their critics, their reviewers, their magazine writers. 
He levels their resorts of business, their places of amusement at a blow, their cities, churches, palaces, ranks and professions, refinements and elegances, and leaves nothing standing but himself, a mighty landmark in a degenerate age, overlooking the wide havoc he has made. He makes war upon all arts and sciences, upon the faculties and nature of man, on his vices and his virtues, on all existing institutions and all possible improvements, that nothing may be left but the Kirk of Scotland and that he may be the head of it. He literally sends a challenge to all London in the name of the King of Heaven to evacuate its streets, to disperse its population, to lay aside its employments, to burn its wealth, to renounce its vanities and pomp. And for what? That he may enter in as the king of glory, or after enforcing his threat with the battering ram of logic, the grape shot of rhetoric, and the crossfire of his double vision, reduce the British metropolis to a Scottish heap, with a few miserable hovels upon it, where they may worship God according to the root of the matter, and an old man with a blue bonnet, a fair-haired girl, and a child would form the flower of his flock. Such is the pretension and the boast of this new Peter the Hermit, who would get rid of all we have done in the way of improvement on a state of barbarous ignorance, or still more, barbarous prejudice, in order to begin again on a tabula rasa of Calvinism and have a world of his own making. It is not very surprising that when nearly the whole mass and texture of civil society is indicted as a nuisance and threatened to be pulled down as a rotten building ready to fall on the heads of the inhabitants, that all classes of people run to hear the crash and to see the engines and levers at work which are to effect this laudable purpose. What else can be the meaning of our preacher's taking upon himself? to denounce the sentiments of the most serious professors in great cities, as vitiated and stock not of relegating religion to his native glens, and pretending that the hymn of praise or the sigh of contrition cannot ascend acceptably to the throne of grace, from the crowded street as well as from the barren rock or silent valley. Why put this affront upon his hearers? Why belie his own aspirations? God made the country and made the town. So says the poet. Does Mr. Irving say so? If he does and finds the air of the city death to his piety, why does he not return home again? But if he can breathe it with impunity and still retain the fervor of his early enthusiasm and the simplicity and purity of the faith that was once delivered to the saints, why not extend the benefit of his own experience to others? instead of taunting them with a vapid pastoral theory. Or if our popular and eloquent divine finds a change in himself, that flattery prevents the growth of grace, that he is becoming the god of his own idolatry by being that of others, that the glittering of coronet coaches rolling down Holborn Hill to Hatton Garden, that titled beauty that the parliamentary complexion of his audience, the compliments of poets, and the stare of peers discompose his wandering thoughts a little, and yet that he cannot give up these strong temptations tugging at his heart. Why not extend more charity to others and show them candor in speaking of himself? There is either a good deal of bigoted intolerance for the deplorable want of self-knowledge in all this, or at least an equal degree of cant and quackery. 
to whichever cause we are to attribute this hyperbolical tone, we hold it certain he could not have adopted it, if he had been a little man. But his imposing figure and dignified manner enabled him to hazard sentiments or assertions that would be fatal to others. His controversial daring is backed by his bodily prowess, and by bringing his intellectual pretensions boldly into a line with his physical accomplishments, he indeed presents a very formidable front to the sceptic or the scoffer. Take a cubit from his stature, and his whole manner resolves itself into an impertinence. But with that addition, he overcrowds the town, browbeats their prejudices, and bullies them out of their senses, and is not afraid of being contradicted by anyone less than himself. It may be said that individuals with great personal defects have been made a considerable figure as public speakers, and Mr. Wilberforce, among others, may be held out as an instance. Nothing can be more significant as to mere outward appearance, and yet he is listened to in the House of Commons, but he does not wield it, he does not insult or bully it. He leads by following opinion, he trims, he shifts, he glides on the silvery sounds of his undulating, flexible, cautiously modulated voice, winding his way betwixt heaven and earth, now quoting popularity, now calling servility to his aid, and with a large estate, the saints and the population of Yorkshire, to swell his influence, never venturing on the forlorn hope of doing anything more than hitting the house between wind and water. Yet he is probably a cleverer man than Mr. Irving. There is a Mr. Fox, a dissenting minister, as fluent a speaker with a sweeter voice and a more animated and beneficent countenance than Mr. Irving, who expresses himself with manly spirit at a public meeting takes a hand at a whist and is the darling of his congregation. But he is no more, because he is diminutive in person. His head is not seen above the crowd the length of a street off. He is the Duke of Sussex in miniature, but the Duke of Sussex does not go to hear him preach, as he attends Mr. Irving, who rises up against him like a martello tower, and is nothing loth to confront the spirit of a man of genius with the royal blood. We allow there are, or may be, talents sufficient to produce this equality with a single personal advantage, but we deny that this would be the effect of any that our great preacher possesses. We conceive it is not improbable that the consciousness of muscular power, that the admiration of his person by strangers may first have inspired Mr. Irving with an ambition to be something, intellectually speaking, and have given him confidence to attempt the greatest things. He has not failed for want of courage. The public, as well as the fair, are won by a show of gallantry. Mr. Irving has shrunk from no opinion, however paradoxical. He has scrupled to avow no sentiment, however obnoxious. He has revived, explored prejudices. He has scouted prevailing fashions. He has opposed the spirit of the age and not consulted the esprit de corps. He has brought back the doctrines of Calvinism in all their inveteracy and relaxed the inveteracy of his northern accents. He has turned religion and the Caledonian chapel topsy-turvy. He has held a playbook in one hand and a Bible in the other and quoted Shakespeare and Melanchthon in the same breath. 
The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is no longer, with his grafting, a dry withered stump. It shoots its branches to the skies and hangs out its blossoms to the gale. Niatut novus fructus et non sua poma. He has taken the thorns and briars of scholastic divinity and garlanded them with the flowers of modern literature. He has done all this, relying on the strength of a remarkably fine person and manner, and though that he has succeeded, otherwise he would have perished miserably. Dr. Chalmers is not by any means so good a looking man, nor so accomplished a speaker as Mr. Irving, yet he at one time almost equalled his oratorical celebrity and certainly paved the way for him. He has therefore more merit than his admired pupil, as he has done as much with fewer means. He has more scope of intellect and more intensity of purpose. Both his matter and his manner, setting aside his face and figure, are more impressive. Take the volume of Sermons on Astronomy by Dr. Chalmers and the four orations of the Oracles of God which Mr. Irving lately published, and we apprehend there can be no comparison as to their success. The first ran like wildfire through the country, where the darlings of watering places were laid in the windows of inns. Footnote A, we remember finding the volume in the orchard at Burford Bridge near Boxhill, and passing a whole and very delightful morning in reading it, without quitting the shade of an apple tree. We have not been able to pay Mr. Irving's back the same compliment of reading it at a sitting, and were to be met within all places of public resort, while the orations get on but slowly, on Milton's stilts, and are pompously announced as in a third edition. We believe the fairest and fondest of his admirers would rather see and hear Mr. Irving than read him. The reason is that the groundwork of his compositions is trashy and hackneyed, though set off by extravagant metaphors and an affected phraseology that without the turn of his head and wave of his hand, his periods have nothing in them, and that he himself is the only idea with which he has yet enriched the public mind. He must lay off his person, as orator Henley used to dazzle his hearers with his diamond ring. The small frontispiece prefixed to the orations does not serve to convey an adequate idea of the magnitude of the man, nor of the ease and freedom of his motions in the pulpit. How different is Dr. Chalmers? He is like a monkey preacher to the other. He cannot boast of personal appearance to set him off, but then he is like the very genius or demon of theological controversy personified. He has neither airs nor graces at command. He thinks nothing of himself. He has nothing theatrical about him, which cannot be said of his successor and rival. But you see a man in mortal throes and agony, with doubts and difficulties, seizing stubborn knotty points with his teeth, tearing them with his hands and straining his eyeballs till they almost start out of their sockets in pursuit of a train of visionary reasoning like a highland seer with his second sight the description of balfour of burley in his cave with his bible in one hand and his sword in another contending with the imaginary enemy of mankind gasping for breath and with the cold moisture running down his face 
gives a lively idea of Dr. Chalmers' prophetic fury in the pulpit. If we could have looked in to have seen Burley hand beset by the coinage of his heat-oppressed brain, who would have asked whether he was a handsome man or not? It would be enough to see a man haunted by a spirit under the strong and entire dominion of a willful hallucination. So the integrity and vehemence of Dr. Chalmers' manner, the determined way in which he gives himself up to his subject or lays about him and buffets skeptics and gainsayers, arrests attention in spite of every other circumstance and fixes it on that and that alone, which excites such interest and such eagerness in his own breast. Besides, he is a logician, has a theory in support of whatever he chooses to advance, and weaves the tissue of his sophistry so close and intricate that it is difficult not to be entangled in it or to escape from it. There's magic in the web. Whatever appeals to the pride of the human understanding has a subtle charm in it. The mind is naturally pugnacious, cannot refuse a challenge of strength or skill, sturdily enters the lists and resolves to conquer or to yield itself vanquished in the forms. This is the chief hold Dr. Chalmers has upon his hearers and upon the readers of his astronomical discourses. No one was satisfied with his arguments, no one could answer them, but everyone wanted to try what he could make of them as we try to find out a riddle by his so potent art, the art of laying down problematic premises and drawing from them still more doubtful but not impossible conclusions, he could bedim the noonday sky betwixt the green sea and the azure vaults at roaring war, and almost compel the stars in their courses to testify to his opinions. The mode in which he undertook to make the circuit of the universe and demand categorical information, now of the planetary and now of the fixed, might put one in the mind of Hecate's mode of ascending in a machine from the stage, midst troops of spirits, in which you now admire the skill of the artist, and next the tumble for the fate of the performer, fearing that the audacity of the attempt will turn his head or break his neck. The style of these discourses also though not elegant or poetical, was like the subject intricate and endless. It was that of a man pushing his way through a labyrinth of difficulties and determined not to flinch. The impression on the reader was proportionate, for whatever were the merits of the style or manner, both were new and striking, and the train of thought that was unfolded at such length and with such strenuousness was bold, well-sustained and consistent with itself. Mr. Irving wants the continuity of thought and manner, which distinguishes his rival, and shines by patches and in bursts. He does not warm or acquire increasing force or rapidity with his progress. He is never hurried away by a deep or lofty enthusiasm, nor touches the highest point of genius or fanaticism. But, in the very storm and whirlwind of his passion, he acquires and begets a temperance that may give it smoothness. He has the self-possession and masterly execution of an experienced player or fencer and does not seem to express his natural convictions or to be engaged in a mortal struggle. This great ease and indifference is the result of a vast superiority of personal appearance which, to be admired, needs but to be seen. 
and does not require the possessor to work himself up into a passion or to use any violent contortions to gain attention or to keep it these two celebrated preachers are in almost all respects an antithesis to each other if mr irving is an example of what can be done by the help of external advantages dr chalmers is a proof of what can be done without them the one is most indebted to his mind the other to his body if mr irving inclines one to suspect fashionable or popular religion of a little anthropomorphism dr chalmers effectually redeems it from that scandal end of chapter 4 recording by shreya sethi